three, two, one. Thanks for joining us. Today we're going to be talking about history as a weapon. Now what do I mean by that? When we look at the Russian invasion of Ukraine and we peel back the layers and motives that led to that invasion, one of the things that we will find is that in Putin's Russia, history has become not only a tool of the state for modernization or for the creation of a national identity, it has also become a weapon. But in the, ca in the case of the invasion of Ukraine, it is a weapon which has misfired, and explaining how and why that happened is the purpose of today's show. First, I would like to say that we should remember Putin has been in power uh, since about 2000. So almost all of the, the young people today who are just becoming adults, uh, they're in the young adult, you know, the 18 to 22 year old range, almost all of them, if not all of them, have grown up in Putin's Russia. And that means that the, the rules and laws and the perspective on the past that have taken shape under his rule are the ones that have influenced them today. So the young Russian soldiers that you see going into Ukraine today grew up under the Putin regime. And that's important because it means that their ideas of the past, of Russia's past, have been shaped by the rule and administration of Vladimir Putin. And so we have to think about Russian history in a, in a little bit different sense than we're used to here in America, because Russia goes back much further. As Olga Turkania writes, the Soviet Union has a thousand-year history beneath its feet. And this is echoed by Ilya Kalinin, who observed that history is a prime resource for national and state construction. And so there's nothing really nefarious about that in and of itself. This is common to many large nations. The, the telling of official history is an integral part, not only of the nation itself and of the nation's story, but of the cultural and national identity of the people who comprise that nation. So that's not unusual. And in the case of Russia, there have been some pretty significant changes to the way the past has been viewed, and that is due to regime change. Most specifically, there was a certain, and I'll get to this in just a moment, but most, in, most specifically, there was a, a view of history promulgated by the Soviet Union and the early Soviet rulers. And then when the Soviet Union collapsed, there is a post-Soviet effort to write history and to tell the history of the Russian nation and the Russian people. It would be an oversimplification to simply claim that there have been revisions of Russian history. Well, there's, there's always, history is always being revised in the sense that new information is being unearthed, new generations bring new perspectives and beliefs and ask new questions. And so, you know, history is a very organic science. It is constantly growing. So this, in the United States, this claim is, is, has a pejorative term. And by the way, we'll get to this that too in a little bit. But so it's, it's not accurate or it's oversimplifying things to really just say that, that there's being revision of history in Russia. Well, of course, there's, there's revision of history because there's an ongoing study of history. But what makes the Russian case distinct is the manner in which and the and the tools with which that has happened. The new perspectives of history have been brought specifically by the nation state. And in the in the example of Russia, 
you know, this is something that was done by the Soviet Union. And I think there's a couple of examples that are, are pretty telling from the, uh, from the early Soviet efforts to put their own stamp on uh, the history of the Russian people. Lenin called it Politskaya Pravonost, which literally translates into political correctness. I'm sure folks today would, would may, may find that sort of amusing, but in the context of when that policy was set down, it simply meant that there was a right version of history and that the state is in charge of writing down and preserving that right version of history. And it is the duty of citizens to learn that right version and to base their decisions and actions upon it. Stalin continued this with his history of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, which built on this idea of only one right interpretation, and he extended it to the idea, in his view, that there was only one right interpretation of history, especially when it came to socialism. And so a lot of things in Soviet life, especially public life, were set up to reinforce and and this is and some of this comes from a really excellent book written by James Pierce called the use of the use of history in Putin's Russia which I would highly encourage folks to read so we have parades and we have public functions that sort of that reinforce these ideas about the past that were taught and you can see this all the way up to I don't want to jump ahead too far to 2018 uh, when Putin's made a, a similar comment during a parade that it was we must preserve, we must prevent the falsification of history. Well, when the Soviet Union collapsed, with it went the Soviet narrative of Russian history. In its place, in post-Soviet Russia, there has been a lot of, under, quite understandably, there has been a lot of effort directed towards a new interpretation and new understanding of Russia's past and of Russian history. And no one could blame Russian scholars or, or Russian thinkers or citizens for wanting to do that when something when an event as large as the collapse of the Soviet Union takes place it by its own nature triggers a new round of questions and a new round of inquiry into the past to try to understand how that happened and what it means for their future now when you have a history that is as long as that of Russia's you know, stretching back well over a thousand years we have to understand that trying to get your arms around uh, a body of, of literature or events or actions that have happened over that large of a time frame is, is quite an endeavor. Prior to the rule of Catherine the Great, who by the way was a, a, an avid reformer and champion of a European style organization of, of history into written narratives that could be printed and, and distributed uh, via books, before her rule, Really, you had mostly um, collections of narrative stories or oral histories that were told from one generation to the next verbally without really the, the type of written manuscripts or, or history textbooks that we're used to today. So Catherine was keenly involved in, in trying to change that, herself having grown up in, in Europe, at least for her early childhood. And she brought with her uh, an idea that we need to, that Russia needed to set down a written history and that it needed to be organized and printed and freely available to the people of Russia. And this was done for a number of different purposes, not the least of which was modernization. The idea that we needed to, that Russia needed to expand 
the education of children and citizens so that the expansion of science and trades and industry would be possible because you can't build um, later on this became more important in the 19th century you can't have an industrialized society without an educated workforce it simply doesn't work so there was a lot of efforts to, to gather together pieces of information from across the, the Russian Empire, which is extremely large. You're talking about an enormous piece of land encompassing many different peoples, many different languages, many different uh, events of the past. And so just, just trying to get that organized is, is a monumental challenge. And so while that was done, there were there were choices that had to be made about what to include, what to emphasize, how to interpret it. And so this, this went on up until the time of the, the collapse of the Tsars, which for those who, who have an interest in history, the end of World War I, the military campaign for Russia was disastrous in the First World War. They, they, it did not go well at all, and the military disasters abroad contributed very much and hastened the demise of the Tsars at home in Russia. There were other factors, of course, but that was a significant one, that inspired and convinced the Russian people that they needed to rise up and get rid of the Tsars, which they did. And so with the, the dawning of the Soviet era and the dawning of specifically the ideology that went along with the Soviet Union, communism specifically, there were new efforts to interpret Russia's past through that lens, through the lens of communism, through the lens of a specific ideology, and there was the idea that it was the state's job to take charge of that. In other words, the state was the gatekeeper. The state, the state decided that patriotic education programs were not only possible, they were essential. And that this was essential for school children all across the Soviet Union to learn so that they could embrace the Soviet belief system and be and share the same identity of the Soviet nation. And so this was done for, for decades under Soviet rule. When the Soviet Union, and I'm, I'm going to skip over, I'm not going to go through too many details on, on the Soviet past. We could, there could be a separate show just on that. But when we, we, we skip ahead, excuse me, when we skip ahead to, to the collapse of the Soviet Union, we have the, the satellite countries that were previously included in the USSR suddenly now find themselves to be either independent or part of the Russian Federation or sort of in limbo. And in Ukraine's case, they were granted independence in 1991. And so they became uh, an independent nation. That is an extremely recent development. And I'll get to this in a little bit. Um, but it is not entirely inaccurate to claim, as Putin has, that the, the independent nationhood of Ukraine is, is a very recent phenomenon. In a sense, in a very narrow sense, that's true, but it's a very incomplete truth, and, and we'll explain why in just a little bit on how that came to be. So we have post-Soviet Russia now trying to grapple with the enormity of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And, and this should be seen accurately and rightly as a, a enormous calamitous event in the trajectory of the Russian people over the course of their history. 
So even over the course of a thousand year or more history, the collapse of the Soviet Union stands out as one of the most significant developments, one of the most consequential events that the Russian people have ever faced or ever been through. So we can see in post-Soviet Russia, which has now existed for 31 years, well, 22 of those years have been at the, with, with Vladimir Putin at the helm. So he has been the leader for the majority of the post-Soviet uh, period so far uh, in Russian history. And as James Pierce put it, um, and I mentioned earlier, you know, history, this is a resource for the nation. In a knowledge economy, information is a resource. And we do live in a knowledge economy today. Thanks to the internet, we do live in a knowledge economy, which means information is as valuable as oil. Or information is a commodity, I should say. There, there have been people who have made the claim that data and information is now more valuable than oil. That's, that's a separate uh, topic. You could argue that it is or that it isn't. But it's, it's certainly the case that we do live in a knowledge economy and that information is a valuable asset. And so what particularly is the value of that specific asset for Russia? Well, in order for modern, as James Pierce put it, in order for modernization to occur in Russia, there needs to be a level of political order, and I'm quoting here, that allows to pass reproduction. So by treating it as a resource, it becomes an individual, one indivisible subject by which the state grants access to. So the state grants access to the past. And what that means is when you have the state acting as the, the gatekeeper for the historical narrative of the nation, anyone who puts forth a version of events that the state doesn't agree with or that the state claims to be untrue is called not only a falsification, it's also condemned as an effort to destabilize Russia itself. So that's sort of a key point. By challenging the narrative of Russian history, you're, you're in, fact, in effect putting forth a challenge to the Russian nation itself. And what gives that teeth, what makes that real, is the fact that the state owns access or guards access to the past. And in 2018, Vladimir Putin mentioned this himself at a 2018 Victory Day parade in which he stated that they were determined not to allow anyone to falsify history. So, you have a situation where the state, and this, this is relevant to, to things that are happening here in the United States, and I wanted to take just a brief, very brief uh, detour into that. My home state of Kentucky, our neighbors in Virginia, Many other states across the, the nation are passing laws whereby the state, and I'm talking about these individual states, the states decide what is allowable or what is not allowable when it comes to the teaching of history. No, I am not saying that the authors of those bills are behaving in the same way that Vladimir Putin is or his supporters. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is, that there are similarities when you think about the fact that we have state control of history in Russia to a very high degree, and we now have some legislators here in the United States who want to start down that same path. And the goals were the same. Patriotic education. The rationale put forth by the American legislators here, here in the U.S. 
is that there are there are teachings of history that are being done that are unpatriotic. That are they don't it's not it's not enough to simply say that they don't think those teachings are true, but they think they're unpatriotic. Well, patriotic education is precisely what the Russian government does when it comes to the subject of history. So there are some eerie parallels. And those parallels should be paid attention to because of where they lead. Where they have led Russia today is an invasion of its neighbor. And the history of the relations between Ukraine and Russia, specifically how that history is perceived, understood, and taught to the Russian people and by Russian leaders, is absolutely integral. It is foundational. It is the cornerstone upon which that invasion was predicated. And I'm going to tell you how. In 2021, Russian President Putin published a 5,000, well, roughly 5,000 word article called entitled On the Historical Unity of Russians and Ukrainians. It used to be available online on the Kremlin's website. Unfortunately, if you go to that website now, it's not working. I, I don't know why it's not working. It's possible that they simply removed it. It's possible that the website the Kremlin runs has been hit by some sort of cyber attack. I don't know, but either way, it's not working right now. But there are some copies of it, and the text is you can find in other places. And basically, the gist of the essay was that the Ukrainians, in, in Putin's view, Russians and Ukrainians, excuse me, are one people. This is a direct quote. They're one people. And... He went on to say that true sovereignty for Ukraine is possible only in partnership with Russia. So what's extraordinary about the publication is a couple of things. Um, unsurprisingly, at that time, Ukrainian President Zelensky responded by, by saying, well, you know, Russia's president must have a lot of time on their hands to, to write a 5,000-word uh, essay on, on the, the history of Ukraine and Russia. But it does give you an indication of how prominently this is weighing on his mind. So for a, a national leader to take that much time uh, to devote to uh, the publication of an essay on, on a single topic uh, suggests to me at least that this is a topic that he considers to be a, a pretty significant one for him and, and for the country that he's leading. Now, the actual content of that essay is, is something else. And there are many claims that were made therein that can be questioned, that can be challenged. It should be questions or, or, and should be challenged. And I'll give you an example of um, what I'm talking about. When it comes to history, and specifically the history of, of Ukraine and Russia, history has been used as a, it might be a stretch to say it's been used as a weapon before, but it has certainly been used as a tool of the state before. There have been multiple times in the past, both under the Tsars and under the Soviet Union, when authorities in those respective regimes used the power of the state to ban Ukrainian language and Ukrainian history from official narratives of the Russian, Russian state or the Russian nation. And so there's many examples of that where theater or literature or any books written by Ukrainian authors were, were not allowed to be published. You could be, you could be put in jail or, or fined for doing so. And this has happened 
a number of times um, over the centuries. And most specifically, though, most recently in the, in the past 200 years, uh, because that's when the spirit of Ukrainian nationalism sort of began to grow and began to increase. And so leaders in Russia viewed this as a threat to the stability of the Russian nation because they, and, and some genu- like Putin genuinely believed that, that Ukrainians and Russians are one people and that they cannot be separated. And any attempts to do so must be the result of foreign subversives or anti-Russian activities. And you hear this language, the same kind of language coming from Putin today, which is how he characterizes the efforts of Ukraine to be an, a separate and independent nation. And, and he's added into the mix, uh, into this, when it comes to foreign subversives, he's added into this the claims that there are Nazi groups in Ukraine that are plotting to attack Russia. And I just want to take a brief moment to comment. There are far-right groups in Ukraine. There are far-right militias in Ukraine. Yes, there are. But they're not popular. They don't have anywhere near widespread support. In the 2019 elections, far-right groups received 2.9% of the vote, so not not very much, not not popular standing. It's certainly not a threat to the Russian people or, or inside Russia's borders, and it's then it's certainly not the case that any of those groups have the capability or intentions to invade Russia. But this is one of the the, the false pretexts that Putin has used to justify the invasion of Ukraine. But the much larger reason is the view of history promulgated by Putin himself and echoed throughout Russia in the teachings of history that are done at the behest and the direction of the state. There are laws that have been passed and you can be you can get in trouble and again this echoes some things that are happening in the United States now or trying to happen. You can get in trouble for teaching versions of history that violate the state approved narrative. So you see the you see the similarities here in the United States where people are where, where state legislators are trying to make that very same thing a possibility. They want to be able to punish teachers for for teaching a version of history they didn't approve of. One of the state legislators here in Kentucky said, "Well, there have to be some guardrails." Well, no there don't. The only guardrails are the facts. There are absolutely no other guardrails on the teaching of history or the study of history except what is factually true and the efforts to find what is factually true or determine what it means. There's no other guardrails on it. The state cannot has no role in doing that, but that's a separate argument. The fact is the the view that Ukraine is central to or is part of the Russian nation, its Russian territory, its people are Russian, and that any efforts at independence must be the result of foreign subversives or anti-Russian activities are absolutely central central to the invasion of Ukraine, which we saw happen here in the winter of 2022. Some other parts of Putin's claims could be considered sensible under other circumstances. It is true that Russia has devoted significant time and resources to Ukraine, and it's certainly not unreasonable for a leader of a nation that has spent so much time and effort in Ukraine to expect something in return. I think that would probably be the case for any any nation or any national ruler that had devoted considerable resources. We would then expect there to be some obligation on the part of those recipients towards towards the givers. Uh, so that that I think that's not an unreasonable claim by itself. But what he expects from Ukraine goes far beyond obligations to 
money or resources that were that were spent or devoted to modernization or development or economic development in Ukraine. What Putin expects is for Ukraine to be part of Russia. And that means following, not just following orders from Moscow, it also means Russification. That's an idea where we have, instead of, it specifically means that the Russian language is the primary language, the Russian nation is your national identity, and the, the one right version of Russian history taught by the state is the one you believe to be true. Those are things that come into conflict in places like Ukraine, which have their own language, their own culture, and a history which is very different from the official narrative taught or pushed by Putin. The western parts of Ukraine were never really ruled by Imperial Russia. They were under Polish dominion for a, for a long time. And even during Stalin's tenure, there was a lot of problems in Ukraine with ruling those lands. There was, a, there was enough spirit of Ukrainian nationalism that Stalin wanted to, wanted to squash it. And one of the ways he did that was through uh, deliberate starvation campaigns, which, by the way, resulted in the deaths of millions of Ukrainians. And so this is a memory that is still fresh uh, or still part of Ukraine's uh, cultural consciousness, if you will, still part of Ukrainian culture. You know, people remember that. During the Second World War, Ukraine was caught in the middle, which by geography is simply where it's been placed. It is in the middle between Europe and Russia. And as Samuel Huntington has correctly stated, it is the fault lines between different civilizations. But during the Second World War, the Nazi regime came through Ukraine. And this also is a very indelible indelibly printed into the collective memory of Russia. The, the Nazi invasion of Russia resulted in somewhere, estimates vary, but it could be between 30 up to 50 million casualties in Russia, far more than any other nation. So it would be historically correct to say that the Russian people suffered more in the Second World War than any other people. That, I think that's a fact. And it is true that because there was all, before the Nazis even invaded, there was already strong resentment of Stalin's rule. There was already Ukrainian nationalism, which he had tried to suppress forcefully. So when Russia today says, when, they, when, they, when Putin today talks about Nazis being active in Ukraine, which is what he calls the far-right groups, when he says that there are Nazis act, act, active in Ukraine, he's playing on a very significant part of Russian history and Russian cultural memory from the Second World War, because there were groups in Ukraine that allied themselves with the Third, the Third Reich because they wanted to get rid of Stalin. So it was one of those situations where my enemy's enemy is my friend. There was never popular support in Ukraine for the Nazis. There was never popular support in Ukraine for Hitler. There was never popular support in Ukraine for the Nazi regime. There never was. But there were some groups there who decided, as an, they saw an opportunity when Hitler invaded, to get revenge on their Russian enemies. and But this is presented to the Russian people as another example of Ukraine plotting to attack Russia with far-right groups. So that is Putin, again, using history as a, as a weapon to push and, and a tool of policy to 
reinforce his own narrative about current events. As I said, yes, there are far-right groups in Ukraine, but they're, they're very small in number. They don't have popular support. They're, they're not going to invade Russia. That's, that's all just complete fabrication. It's 100% fabrication. But it's a fabrication that echoes and that resonates with a certain frequency in the cultural memory of the Russian people. That's true. It does. And so, initially, that had folks in Russia concerned, scared, and even angry. You know, the, the eastern regions of Ukraine, where there has been fighting since 2014, have seen an influx of militias and what would be called pro-Russian fighters, which is simply Russian citizens who are coming to the region in order to engage in hostilities. A great, a large reason why so many people did that in the past eight years is because Moscow consistently, systematically, and on an enormous scale broadcast propaganda, fabrications, and outright falsehoods about what was going on in those regions. But nevertheless, a lot of people who, who listened to that believed it and took up arms in eastern Ukraine as a result of it. So that the, 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 the theory they were working under was, well, we didn't order anyone to take up arms in eastern Ukraine, which is technically true, but they worked very hard to inspire and convince people to do that very thing. And so that has happened over the past eight years. And so Russian state media, which is actually a constellation of different platforms, both online and on television and on radio, they constantly beat this narrative of Nazis in Ukraine. And it's unfortunate to see so many people here, or at least some people here in the United States, who have, who have bought into that narrative, which is entirely a fabrication of the Russian government. It's unfortunate to see people still buying that today, but they did. And so they beat these drums for year after year after year. And when the conflict was not resolved, it escalated. And so this, in part, put pressure, the, the narrative being pushed by Moscow of the threat on the border, when the threat on the border wasn't going away, this became, a, and it became a self-fulfilling prophecy for Putin himself to use much larger military forces to stop it, which is to say the invasion of Ukraine. And so while the stated reason by the Russian government is to eliminate, uh, and Putin has said this himself, he calls it denazification, the real reason he wants to invade Ukraine is to, is regime change. They simply want a pro-Russian regime in Kiev. They want Russian taught across the country. They want, and when I say they, I mean Putin and, and his supporters, they want Ukraine to be officially part of Russia, not an independent nation. Well, the Ukrainian people, as we've seen in the past week, want nothing to do with that. They have a very strong sense of their own independent nationhood and if ever there was elegant proof and and in your face proof that putin is wrong of his reading of ukrainian and russian history as one people we are seeing it played out today as the ukrainian people fight to prove on the battlefield now that is their country that they are in fact an independent nation and they are in fact a separate people quite distinct from Russia and, and the Russian cultural tradition. It doesn't mean that they don't still share enormous and significant ties to Russia. They do, and Ukrainians themselves will admit that. But it means that they are and see themselves quite clearly 
as an independent nation, not dependent on Russia as Putin has claimed. At the same time, in Russia itself, we have seen significant protests and public sentiment against Putin's invasion of Ukraine. There have been demonstrations in Moscow. There have been demonstrations in St. Petersburg. For those of us who are fortunate enough to have social media contacts with people who live in Russia, we have seen, I've seen for the first time friends that, that live in Russia who have never, ever, in the years I've known them, they have never posted anything remotely political. Never. Not once. But today I'm seeing them make posts that are very much expressive of their beliefs that the invasion was wrong and their views of Putin, to put it mildly, are not very friendly, not very positive. So I don't think it would be inaccurate to say that of the miscalculations in this invasion, one of the biggest ones was the miscalculation on the part of Putin that the Russian people would support him and would support this invasion. And so this brings us back to the misfire of the weapon of history in the invasion of Ukraine. Why did it misfire? One of the reasons, the most telling reason, was could be heard by one of the protesters in Moscow who told the, their interviewer that they could not believe, they could never imagine that Russia would be an invader, that Russia would invade a neighbor. Well, think about that for a moment. If you look back over the thousand-year history of Russia, there have been countless times, countless times, where Russia has invaded a neighbor. Sometimes they may have had a, a legitimate justification, other times they may not have. You know, the Russian nation is more of an idea and a culture than it is what we in, in the West consider to be a nation state. Boundaries adjust to, the state boundaries adjust to the Russian nation, not the other way around. We see it as there should be fixed boundaries and you have to respect those. That's not necessarily how people in Russia see things. The point is, though, there have been a number of times where Russia has been an invader. So why cannot people today who grew up in Putin's Russia learning the history that he taught them, why can they not imagine Russia as an invader? And the reason is because that part of their history has been completely left out. It's been completely omitted. It's been completely rewritten by the regime of Vladimir Putin, who, while going to great lengths to cleverly construct a comprehensive Russian narrative, of their past and of their nation, did not realize that within that narrative were the seeds of their own defeat when it comes to foreign conquest or the foreign invasion like the invasion of Ukraine. Because they've always presented Russia as the victim, never the aggressor. And so they have, through their own patriotic education campaign, conditioned Russian citizens to see Russia in that way. And so when Russia undertakes a foreign military invasion of Ukraine, Russia is, is the aggressor in that situation. The people, quite understandably, cannot see Russia as an invader because that's not what they've been taught. That's not what they've been told. That's not what they've been instructed. And so the fatal flaw in the state narrative can be now laid bare that Russia has, in fact, been an invader. And Russia is, in fact, today an invader of Ukraine. They are the aggressor. They are the invader. And their people cannot imagine it because their history would not allow them to do so. And so as a consequence, this, this weapon of history that Putin has tried to use has misfired. And there is not popular support in Russia. In fact, there is popular opposition in Russia to the invasion of Ukraine. And there are lessons that we can draw from that. There are lessons that the entire world can draw from that. Because Russia is not the only place where history is being used not only as a tool of the state, but also as a weapon.
The Israel-Palestinian conflict is another example. The conflict between China and Taiwan is another example. The conflict, the tensions between India and Pakistan are another example. And even here in the United States, there has grown in recent times, especially in the past two years, quite uh, raucous public debates over what should or shouldn't be taught in the past or what is not allowable. And we're gonna, we'll, we'll engage some of those areas and some of those topics separately in, in future shows, but suffice to say, when you put the state in charge of writing history and you say that there, that there have to be things that we cannot teach, when we have to put up guardrails in order to preserve a patriotic image of our nation, that is a recipe for disaster. History class is not a pep rally for the nation. History class is not a place where we come to cheerlead patriotism for the country. There's nothing wrong with patriotic spirit at all. I'm not saying that. There's nothing wrong with patriotism. I'm not saying that either. What I am saying is when you try to turn the study of history into an exercise in patriotism, you are deceiving yourself. You're deceiving potentially future generations and you're setting yourself up for the kind of disaster that we're seeing play out in Ukraine today. And it does not matter how noble your intentions are. It doesn't matter how pure your intentions are. It doesn't matter if you only mean to preserve what you think is the proper image of your country. Because the fact is, history is supposed to make us uncomfortable. It's supposed to offend us. It's supposed to be offensive. It's supposed to be unnerving. It's supposed to make us wonder how things like events that happened in the past, and you can pick whatever terrible event you want, insert your terrible event here. Whichever one of those things we choose, we can't look away from them. We can't revise them in such a way that they still fit with a particular political perception or conception of what is patriotic. You can have patriotism and an honest study of the past at the same time. Those two are not mutually exclusive. All I'm saying is you cannot turn history class into a pep rally, a nationalist pep rally. That's what Russia has done for the past 20 years under Vladimir Putin. And unfortunately today we're seeing early efforts of state legislators here in the United States to embark upon a similar path. And although their motives may have been pure, the result is going to be the same. The destruction of the actual truth of history. Only the facts of history, only the facts are our guardrails on understanding the past. There are no other. There simply are none. And so when historians bring up evidence that makes people angry or makes them uncomfortable or makes them wish that it had never happened, that's their job. That's a historian's job. The truth is not always a pleasant thing. It doesn't mean that you should focus only on the negative events in a nation's history. It doesn't mean that you should try to define a nation exclusively by the worst thing that ever happened in that country. I think that's a mistake as well. But it does mean that you simply cannot outlaw those things from being taught. Because what happens is you'll get yourself into a situation just like Russia is today. And now I think Putin is genuinely surprised as to why there is no popular support and why there's popular opposition in Russia. I haven't yet heard him trot out the usual explanations that there are foreign subversives. 
although I expect him to do so. But the fact is that his own directives and his own efforts to control the historical narrative of the Russian nation and the Russian people have directly contributed to not only the catastrophe that is the invasion of Ukraine, but to him the surprise and lack of support and even opposition to that invasion within Russia itself. We have to respect history. We have to respect it so much that we allow the parts of it to be taught that are unpleasant, that are offensive, that are what to some ideologies will be considered subversive. It doesn't matter. It's your ideology that's the problem, not the facts of history. The facts of history are sacred. Once you forget those, once you hide those, once you try to change those just to fit a political agenda, that will lead you to the destruction of the nation, or at the very least, significant damage to it. And that is one of the things we can learn from Vladimir Putin's efforts to use history as a weapon in Ukraine. Thanks for listening, and I hope everyone has a great day. Come <laughs>